Welcome to Precious Pearls Ministries Radio, where we share the blessed Bible and the blessed hope. I am Sister Dana, your host, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen in today. I'm blessed by your faithfulness to the Lord and to this podcast. Our verse for today that we always share is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are on the Resilient Christian Radio Network, and we are uplifting the Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray for this ministry and the station to continue to share the gospel. And if you would like any prayer, please email me at preciouspearlsministriesradio at rcrnetwork.com. I just wanted to say today we have a guest, and I had promised before that he would be on, and I'm so glad to have him here with us today. It is my pastor, Aaron Brummett, and he's the pastor of Lighthouse Anabaptist Church in Springfield, Missouri, and he's also the founder of Repentance Cry Ministries. He's an author, a street evangelist, a conference speaker, and a host of the critically acclaimed radio show, The Lighthouse. And also, he is a veteran from the military in the Army. He served there. And he lives in Springfield now, and he serves as pastor and teacher at Lighthouse Anabaptist Church. And I asked him to come on here today, and he'll be a guest in future podcasts, to just to help us to understand what repentance is really means for today, what it really means. And it is his fervent desire and prayer that the remnant will arise in accordance with Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And Pastor Aaron, thank you for being with us today. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Amen. It's good to be on the program. All right, we're going to talk about repentance, and I have some questions for you that people have said to me in different times when I've shared about what repentance really means. The first question I have is, where does the Bible say that repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life? So we need to deal with the definitions of some words here. Mm -hmm. And the word repentance, I want to give you the English definition as well as the Strong's definition, and then we're also going to cover the Vine's definition. Um, First of all, we need to understand what the English word means. And when I look at word studies, I usually go first to the Webster 1828 dictionary and look up what it says. Um, Noah Webster was an incredible Um, Christian as well as incredible theologian, and he says the word repentance has three meanings. The first one he gives is sorrow for anything done or said, and that definition is important because we understand that repentance can also be a turning away from something that is good just as much as a turning away from something that is bad. We know that God repents. When he repents, he simply turns away from something that um, was done or said. Um, He says, sorrow for anything done or said, the pain or grief which a person experiences in consequence of the injury or inconvenience produced by his own conduct. The second definition is the theological definition, and that is the pain, regret, or affliction which a person feels on account of his past conduct, 
because it exposes him to punishment. This sorrow proceeding merely from the fear of punishment is called legal repentance as being excited by the terrors of legal penalties and it may exist without an amendment of life. And so this particular definition, which is, is one of the theological definitions we have to look at, does indicate that repentance can be simply a sorrow over an action that we did that was wrong, that was illegal, um, and it may not produce an amendment of life, a complete amendment of life. The third definition, he says real penitence or real sorrow for sin. And this is the definition I want to deal with primarily tonight. He says, sorrow or deep contrition for sin as an offense and dishonor to God, a violation of his holy law, and the basest ingratitude towards a being of infinite benevolence. This is called evangelical repentance and is accompanied and followed by amendment of life. So he kind of gives us several definitions here. I would say the second one is not necessarily real repentance. The real repentance, according to the definition of the word in his dictionary, is it must be accompanied by amendment of life. Then he says repentance is a change of mind or conversion from sin to God. So we have a moving from one place to another being attached and loving sin to being attached and loving God. And then he uses a verse. I love how, how he uses scripture throughout his um, definitions. He says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Then he says, Repentance is the relinquishment of any practice from conviction that it has offended God. That definition is impossible to reconcile it with the modern belief that repentance is only a change of mind because here he is saying repentance means a relinquishment or a releasing of a practice, a sinful practice, from conviction that it has offended God. That is the English definition, but we need to look into the Greek and the Hebrew as well here tonight. And the Hebrew word in the Strong's is nakam, and the, the definition here is properly to sigh, that is, breathe strongly, by implication to be sorry, key word. That is, in a favorable sense, to pity. We find that word used extensively throughout the Hebrew Bible, and it clearly means that there must be sorrow over what somebody has done. The, the definition that is so often misinterpreted is the Greek definition, and that is the word metanoia, which is in the Strong's. Strong's is, is usually very concise, so we, we lose the fullness of the definition by looking at the Strong's, so we're going to have to then go from the Strong's to the Vines to get a clear understanding of this word, but the simplest definition here in the Strong's is to think differently or Afterwards, that is reconsider morally to feel compunction to repent. Now, that is a very simplified definition, and that's the reason why it is important that Christians who are doing word studies look deeper into, for example, the Vines definition 
of Hebrew and Greek words. And here's where we're going to find that metanoia is, is far more than just a change of mind. And theologians that are saying it's only a change of mind simply do not know Greek and have not studied the definition of this word in depth. Metanoia in the Vines Greek definition says afterthought, change of mind, repentance corresponds in meaning to and is used of repentance from sin or evil. Mm -hmm. So that there, and we're not done with the definition, immediately goes against this common trend in, in Christendom, which, which says that repentance is not actually turning from sin or from particular actions. It's saying here in the definition, it means repentance from sin or evil, um, where the word repentance seems to mean not simply a change of Isaac's mind, but such a change as would reverse the effects of his own previous state of mind, that's Hebrews 12, 17. Esau's birthright bargain could not be recalled. It involved an irretrievable loss. And he goes on and says, as regards repentance from sin, the requirement by God on man's part is set forth. He gives a number of references, and he says the mercy of God in giving repentance or leading men to it is set forth the most authentic um, manuscripts. He goes on, talks about some different passages that um, use this particular phrase. And then I want to hone in on his New Testament definition. And here's what he says. In the New Testament, the subject chiefly has reference to repentance from sin and this change of mind involves both a turning from sin and a turning to God. And he gives the story of the parable of the prodigal son. So any theologian or any Christian who would say that this word only means a change of mind is neglecting the twofold meaning of the word, which both means a change of mind and a turning from sin with a turning to God. So based upon our definitions, we immediately can throw out this false view that it is only a change of mind. Uh, according to the definition itself, and we're going to see some scriptures here in a second, it is far more than just a change of mind. What was the second part of that question? Basically, the change of life that they're saying, is, isn't it? evident that you're going to have a change of life if you come to a surrendering of your life to God. If you're saying that you're sorry for something, you don't continue to do that. Right. So my point was that a lot of people think that this is just a change of mind, and you've helped under us understand that it's not. It's more yes, to it's, it than it's that. It's far more than just a, a change of mind, according to the Greek <laughs> definition, as well as just the simple English definition, all of them include a accompaniment um, and a, f a following of amendment of the life, so a life change, which involves also a turning from sin. So hopefully that will help our, our listeners understand the definition of the word. Well, my other question is, aren't you preaching lordship salvation by saying that repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of life? So th there is a, a misunderstanding um, by some Christians about lordship salvation or what exactly that phrase means. Now, there are obviously people that interpret lordship salvation as a works-based salvation. 
And, and I always challenge people to read Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9 and show me where that does not include Jesus being Lord of your life. Um, Romans 10 and verse 9 says, If thou shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It begins by saying that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Now, there is a confession being made by every true believer that Jesus is Lord. And, and there's a misunderstanding, I hear this often, that you can't make Jesus Lord. You can't make him Lord. He is Lord. But he isn't Lord of the heart of a sinner. Um, a sinner does have to surrender his heart to God and allow God to be Lord over his heart. And, and that is why we confess him as Lord. Uh, so I would say that without confessing him as Lord, you cannot be saved. And in fact, that is the way that Paul was saved. And if we go to Acts, we find in the story of Paul's conversion that he refers to often when he accounts and tells the story of his testimony. He comes back to Acts chapter number 9, where we find the story of of Paul going to slaughter Christians in Damascus. And we find in verse number Three, and it says, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, those pricks were cattle goads, they were sharp objects that were pushed into the side of animals to get them to respond, specifically stubborn animals. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, you are not surrendered to me. You are fighting against me. You have been resisting me. And then it says, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Key phrase, our key word is Lord. Mm -hmm. There is a distinct change in his heart when he says to Jesus Christ, the one he was persecuting, you are Lord, and whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. And so that is what I would call the kind of lordship salvation that is required for true salvation. Um, that is not a workspace salvation by allowing Jesus to be Lord over your heart. It means that you're putting the reins of your heart into God's hands that he can control it. And, every, and any true um, look at true salvation testimonies in Scripture will find that people made Christ Lord of their heart. So you're saying that he's not Lord over the heart of you when you're a sinner. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay. Correct. He is not able to, the word Lord indicates he's master, he's um, king over your heart, uh, and you're his servant. And the Bible says before salvation that we are a servant to sin or a servant to the kingdom of darkness. And then after salvation, we are a servant to righteousness, to, to Christ. So therefore, we have to relinquish our lordship to Satan resign from that lordship and then submit to the lordship of christ at salvation that must happen that, that does not say that you have to go and be baptized in order to be saved that's not saying you have to take communion or the lord's supper to be saved that's not saying that you have to give to charity to be saved it's simply saying you you have to turn the reins of your heart over to christ 
Um, that is a supernatural act, not necessarily a physical act um, in, in Scripture. And what is quick prayerism? So quick prayerism is rooted, it really is rooted in a trend that happened early on, sort of with Billy Sunday. It kind of was creeping in with Billy Sunday. There was a, a desire to see massive conversions, and, and there were several preachers in Billy Sunday's time that were discontented with a lack of conversions. So mm. they felt that by making it dumbed down or simpler, um, easy enough that somebody could do it without a surrendering of their pride or without um, turning the reins of their heart over to, to Christ, that they could get more conversions. And so what happened was uh, before Billy Sunday, many revival services had an altar where people came down to an altar and were dealt with and then taken to a room called an inquiry room. You hear this word often um, previous to Billy Sunday, and these inquiry rooms were places where men and women could ask questions of pastors and evangelists to, to find out how to be saved. It was, a, it was a much longer process than what crept in in the early 1900s. And many times people were dealt with for hours in these inquiry rooms. Scripture was um, given to them at length. They were dealt with about their sins um, by name. Um, this changed after the 1900s where people were looking for larger numbers in their crusades and campaigns. And what happened was they wanted to bring conversions at the altar in many times minutes rather than hours. And so they had to dumb it down to where it ultimately was just a repeat after me prayer rather than dealing with the actual repentance required of salvation and faith. Um, today it has been shortened down to people not even having to come to an altar so they can sit in their seat um, a person will ask him to raise their hand, and then he'll say, I'm going to give you a prayer. I want you to repeat this in your seat after me. You don't even have to repeat it out loud. Just do it in your heart, and then just say amen, and you're saved. And it, it totally has removed the necessity of the Word of God bringing somebody to salvation. We find the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Bible says the only way somebody's going to be born again is through the word of God, hearing it. In Romans 10, 17, it says, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Bible converts the soul of man. It brings him to the knowledge of sins um, the horror of hell, death and hell, and then as well as tells them about the gospel, the cross, and what is necessary in a sinner's life to be saved. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 4 and verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So we have to get back to uh, altar calls that involve taking people to inquiry rooms where the Bible can bring them to faith. The hearing of the word can bring them to faith. And, and so these short prayers that people are, are making um, many times leave out the necessity of confessing sin, um, repenting of it, and a lot of times it also leaves out just what the gospel is and how the gospel saves a soul. 
And is I was told in different times when I spoke to different preachers and pastors in, in the past that the only sin that condemns you to hell is the sin of unbelief. That's a, that is a very important part of what we're going to get into a little bit later on this evening, and that is um, antinomianism. And we're going to deal with how that exact question plays a role in this heresy that has um, come into the church, not just recently, but all the way back in the time of Martin Luther. Um, to first, just to answer that question from Scripture, if we go to 1 Corinthians um, chapter number 6, we find one of many lists of things that will keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. And if you don't inherit the kingdom of God, by default, you end up in hell. And 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 8, it says, Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your, your brethren. Verse 9 is really where he kicks into his argument. He says, Paul writes, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. That is significant. That's the word we use when we talk about Satan. Satan deceives us. What we're going to read following that phrase, if we understand this correctly in context, we will not be deceived. He says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That phrase in the Greek is the word sodomite. That's the exact phrase for homosexual in the Bible. Um, verse 10 says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul writes here and explains sins that will keep you out of heaven, therefore sending you to hell. Sins like drunkenness. By drinking, getting drunk, you cannot go to heaven, therefore you inherit hell. Revilers, these are people who cuss and swear and use filthy communication against others. They cannot go to heaven for that sin, and they will inherit hell. Uh, extortioners, as well as we see here, homosexuals, effeminate, or men who act like women. Adulterers, we see fornicators, these grievous sexual sins will keep somebody out of heaven, therefore causing them to go to hell. Idolaters, those who put things before God, um, will go to hell. Now, we have another list that I always pe refer people to, and that is in Revelation. Revelation chapter number 21 gives us a list. Now, in this list, we are going to see that belief is one of many sins that does send somebody to hell, but it's only one. Revelation chapter number 21, and we're going to look carefully through this list on your program. Um, Revelation 20, verse 7 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now here comes the list. These are things that will get you put in the lake of fire. But the fearful, um, that is in the Greek, deals with cowardice. People who are cowardly um, will end up in hell for being fearful of not wanting to serve God, um, not wanting to be saved, and many other things. Next, we have and unbelieving. That's on the list. Um, unbelief will get you put in hell, but it's not the only sin that will get you put in hell. Next, we have and the abominable. That would be homosexuals, anybody who does abominations before God, including lying and many other things. 
and murderers and whoremongers, that's sex outside of marriage, and sorcerers, those are practicing witchcraft and, and sorcery, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There are many other lists we can look at, but based upon Revelation 21, verse 8, we can clearly say that unbelief is only one of many sins that will get you put in the lake of fire. And there are several other there. We could go to other lists in Revelation, other lists as well in Romans, um, but I think those are sufficient enough to show that that belief, which is really the rooted in, uh, in an anti Nomianism is a heresy and must be rooted out of the true church. Can you share the scripture reference for the listeners in Romans, which one that was? So that would be um, Romans chapter number one. Romans chapter number one. I won't read all the way through it, but okay. I'll kind of emphasize a couple points on that. Um, Romans chapter number one, we find a very lengthy list, probably one of the longest ones in, in the Bible. Um, and it says here, I'll just kind of jump into it, verse number 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all, and it gives a list here, unrighteousness, fornication, and the ending of that list is where it, it becomes very important for this, when we expose this false belief that only unbelief will send you to hell. Verse 32 says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And so he lays out here that a list of things that will cause death, and we understand that when we use that word death, that separation from the body that for a sinner, that is being also put into hell. Thank you for that. And a lot of people think that you're tell telling about work salvation by claiming that repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of life. So we need to dig in here tonight into repentance in Scripture to understand why it is not a works, just as much as faith is not a works, and why it is required before salvation. And, and to kind of dig into that this evening, I'm going to turn, we're going to turn to a few verses here to understand this principle. Acts 26 and verse 20 is probably one of the strongest verses in the Bible that totally refutes and will forever refute the idea that repentance is only a change of mind. That verse destroys that argument. And it comes down like a house of cards. Acts 26 and verse 20 says, But showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles. This is the message that's being preached that they should repent and turn to God. Notice how that compares to the Vine's definition of metanoia which is not only a repentance away from sin, but a turning to God. But watch what it says in the rest of this verse. And do works meet, that word meet means worthy, worthy for repentance. Let me read that again. And do works worthy for repentance. So repentance 
will produce works just as much as faith will produce works. The works are not the repentance and the works are not the faith, but for re repentance to be true and genuine, that change of mind and that turning away from sin is always going to produce a changed life. It, it can't do anything else but change the person's life. And, and here's the misunderstanding. Um, at repentance, when they are turning from sin, let me explain it this way. If a little child, if you had a little child and he was hitting his sister, and you were to tell him he needed to repent of hitting his sister and hurting his sister, by repenting he stops hitting his sister. Now, he's not doing anything at all. He's just, he's not hitting his sister. So he's not actually doing a work, he's stopping doing a work. So he's, he is simply doing nothing where he was doing sin. And true repentance is simply stopping what you are doing when you turn from that sin. Therefore, it's not a work in and of itself. It will ultimately produce a lifestyle that is now prepared and worthy or meet um, to produce works. And that is clear here in Acts 2620. Uh, it would also be good Let's go quickly over to um, James, and let's see a, a similar comparison to faith. And this is where a lot of people have a misunderstanding that faith is only intellectual knowledge, uh, such as the devils believing there is a God or a person believing there is a God. In, in James, we deal with true what true faith is, just as much as we saw there what true repentance is. And... And if we go to um, the book of James, chapter 2, James makes some very powerful and potent statements against pseudo-faith. And he says here in verse number 17, James 2, 17, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. And that's a horrific word, dead, a corpse. It's rotting. He is saying here, as we say in, see in verse 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. And James says, And I will show thee my faith by my works. Well, what does that mean? Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a list of the heroes of faith throughout the Old Testament. And you'll notice, after it gives us a definition of faith, now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, verse 1. It then, in verse 4, it says, by faith Abel offered. So, in essence, by faith Abel did a work. Number 5, by faith Enoch was translated by verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark. Noah, by faith, did a work and prepared the ark. Um, Abraham, we see in verse number 8, it says, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. So in a nutshell, by faith Abraham obeyed. He went, traveled to Canaan land. Um, we find as we move through this text over and over again, people having faith and doing a work because of it. We could go to verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, 
was hid three months of his parents. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By, so we could say, by faith Moses refused. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God and not to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Over and over again, we see by faith an action was done. Same thing in verse 31, Rahab, um, by faith she um, received the spies. So faith always produced works, and the evidence of the faith is the works, according to James. Once again, he says in James 2 and verse 17, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. He says the only way you can see that faith is by works, verse 18. And then he says in verse 19, thou believest there is one God. He's dealing with this pseudo-faith, which is just intellectual belief, saying, yes, I believe that something exists, or I believe that something is true, but it doesn't put you to action. He says, um, thou believest there is one God. He's speaking generally to pseudo-Christians. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. And it's almost as if he's mocking these pseudo-Christians, saying the devils believe, they tremble. What kind of belief do you have? Does it make you tremble? Do you have less faith and belief than the demons of hell? And then he concludes in verse number 26, and he says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And anybody who says that dead faith can save you is very, very foolish. True faith is the kind of faith that always produces works. And it's the same thing with true repentance. True repentance, according to Acts 26.20 produces a turning to God and doing works that are worthy of that true genuine repentance. And so that, I believe, puts down this uh, false belief that repentance is, is works. No, it's not works. Faith is not the works, but repentance will produce works, and faith will produce works. So when people were told about the sinner's prayer, what where was that basis from? What I mean is, what do you feel they were trying, the preachers were trying to accomplish with that? Well, the basic sinner's prayer, I could just go off the top of my head, would be something like this. Um, you'd repeat these kind of words, um, God, I'm sorry that I'm a sinner. They would repeat that. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. They would repeat that. I believe he rose again. They would repeat that. And there would be variations to what we call the sinner's prayer, such as, um, I am thankful for your salvation. Um, I am willing, some would add, I'm willing to now serve you. But it was a very short, condensed prayer that had, in a nutshell, major segments of what brings salvation. But by simply repeating words, it could have nothing to do with what the heart of man is actually e expressing. It could just be intellectual or mind consent, which is why I believe many people miss heaven by 18 inches, their head to their heart. And there has to be a change wrought in the heart. Romans 10.9, as we said a second ago, says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And then he goes on and says that we um, confess with our mouth and, and believe with our heart again in the next verse. So basically repentance is not the same as faith. It's not the same. And by definition, it's not the same. Faith, by definition, 
I want to give the listeners what I believe is the very best, best definition in, in all um, of the Bible. There, Paul deals with Abraham and how Abraham was saved um, by faith, and he emphasizes that it wasn't Abraham's works that saved him, but his faith in Romans chapter 4 and verse number 21. And I don't know if there's any definition besides maybe the Hebrews 11.1 1 definition that is any better than this. So let's read it here for our listeners and, and see what the Lord has to say about true faith. Uh, Romans chapter 4. Verse number 20 is where I want to begin to give us a little bit of context. He says, And being fully persuaded what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And this is speaking of Abraham being persuaded concerning the giving of a son when he was um, beyond age and his wife was beyond age. I guess we need the context of this. Let's look at verse 19. And being not weak in faith, there's a key phrase, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. And I love verse 20. It says he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. So faith means you don't stagger at God's promises. You're not wishy-washy. You're not like a a person tossed to and fro in the waves, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And you could not, I don't believe you can find a better definition than that. Faith is fully persuaded. We're not halfway persuaded that the things in the Bible are true. We are fully persuaded that they are true and that when God says that we need to obey him, live for him, serve him, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, that that is true and genuine and should be followed. And so true faith in Abraham produced some pretty incredible works and a life of righteousness. And so I would say that genuine faith will produce a changed life and that many of these quick prayers do not put a lot of focus on this kind of faith. It's usually just believing that things are so rather than believing that we need to obey what the Word of God says. Right. You hear many people in the streets when you're street preaching, I believe in God. And they always say, well, God wouldn't say this or God wouldn't say that. So basically they're speaking for him instead of studying the word of God for themselves to come to a saving um, faith in him. Yes. And when you mentioned about wavering, I was no. thinking of the verse in James um, 1, 6, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. Amen. Is that similar to what That's you're speaking about? For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. And it says, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. So if you're wavering in your faith, basically your faith is not true. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to receive anything from the Lord. So that's showing right there. When Amen. Amen. There's another passage that, I, that changed my life, 2017. It seems like every year there's some primary verse that 
that God um, helps me to understand through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is John chapter 3 and verse number 36. This is was such an enlightening passage for me. Um, it really helps us understand that belief is far more than just intellectually believing some facts or some theological statements. Um, here we find in verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And that is a, a phrase we, see, we hear redundantly throughout the Gospels, believing on Jesus. And that is exactly what, what it says. It is casting our trust, our faith, our care upon Christ. But that's not how the second part of the verse goes in explaining those that are not going to see life. It says, and he that believeth not the Son, it does not say, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life. It says, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so this passage shows us that Jesus wants more than just us to trust him or to cast our care upon him and cling to him. We are to believe the Son, what he says. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do we believe what he says? Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Do we believe what he says? Jesus said to love your enemies, to pray for them that despitefully use you. Do we believe what he says? Jesus said to not use vain repetitions in prayer. And we shouldn't use them, I believe, in worship music. Do we believe what he says? We go through a list of things that Jesus said. It is not enough to just say, I trust Jesus. I believe on him. According to that passage, if we do not believe him, what he says, we will end up in hell. And so faith is much more than believing God exists, or even believing that Jesus died on the cross, that it actually happened in history. It's far more than that. It's trusting it, and then it's allowing what the gospel is to change our life into a Christ-like individual. And my last question is, when you talk about repentance, it's not mentioned in the book of John. Is there a reason why it's not mentioned in there? So that is a really good question. I was thinking about that. Uh, Re Revelation was written by John. So mm -hmm. in the book of John, we do not find repentance, that word. Um, but John wrote several other books of the Bible. He wrote the book of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, John the Apostle writes, and he says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Notice how he just immediately puts that with repentance. Repent and do the first works. Somebody who truly repents is going to do the first works, is what he's implying. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So the question we should ask is not why is repentance not in the book of John? We have to compare all of scripture to understand doctrine, and we don't just have only the book of John. We have 
the Old and New Testament. We have other writings of the Apostle John, and in his other writings, he emphasizes the great need for repentance. And so that would be my, my answer to that question. I, I believe that John, the Apostle, believed in repentance with all of his heart. Can you just briefly explain the chapter 7 there where it says, he that hath an ear? Because a lot of people would think um, that they heard the gospel. Many people, when they go on Judgment Day and they said a sinner's prayer and they never really surrendered their life to the Lord, would say, I, I heard the gospel. I had ears. I was listening. I heard. So could you just explain that part in verse 7? So we, um, we need to understand that God does open the heart of man through the preaching of God's word. And when Jesus over and over again in, in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 talks about he that hath an ear, let him hear, uh, he, he uses that same phrase when he talks about the sower and the seed. And the importance here is that we do need to be desperately seeking after God. There needs to be a pressing in. And when we are looking for truth and seeking for truth and not shutting it out and hardening our neck, we will be more able to be able to understand what God is saying concerning salvation. And so he wants us to, to listen, um, to give him a, a, all of our, our attention so to speak, when we are studying salvation. Um, another important thing I, I do think we need to cover here before we run out of time, I think we're getting close here to ending the program, I want to make sure we do cover the uh, false doctrine of antinomianism and kind of where this came into existence. And it's not a new doctrine. Um, it goes far back to the time of Martin Luther and even before that. Um, let me read something out of a book here that I'd re recommend all of the listeners get a copy of. It's called Repentance from Sin. Um, Joshua Jocelyn wrote this. He's a good friend of mine, also a street preacher. And the book is How Antinomianism Disarmed the Gospel and Not the Sinner. And, and in this book, on page number 45, he says... And where would these enemies of repentance get such a casual attitude towards sin? Where might they have picked up such a flippant view of that which crucified the Son of God? From their ancient antinomian counterparts, of course. As recorded in the Lutheran Cyclopedia, Agricola, the founder of the ancient antinomian cult, had a curiously unbiblical view of sin regarding it as a malady, and I quote, as a malady or impurity rather than an offense rendering the sinner guilty and damnable before God. There was this lie that was creeping in that sin was just a defect, that when somebody sinned, it was a disease. And, and yes, sin is a disease, and, and we preach that, but more than that, it is a legal offense against God. And as this book explains so wonderfully, it explains that when we come to God with the dagger of rebellion in our hand, 
The only way that we can enter God's presence is to lay that dagger down. That is what repentance is. It's laying down that sin, that, that dagger, that tool of rebellion, really the tools that nailed Jesus to the cross have to be laid down in order to come to God. This, the, the teaching of antinom the um, antinomians is ultimately that only belief sends you to hell, Therefore, all you have to do is repent of unbelief. As we proved, that is not the only thing that sends you to hell. Um, and by definition, the word metanoia is not only a changing of mind, but it has to be a changing of mind if it's genuine that results in amendment of life by definition. It, it ultimately means that there must be an understanding of our ingratitude towards a being of infinite benevolence. And many of the... Um, the fundamentalists of years past preached repentance from sin. This is not a, a new belief or a heretical belief. It is the standard belief of all the revivalists down through the ages. I'm going to give you a couple quick quotes as we come towards the end of the program here of great men of God and what they said about repentance. Um, D.L. Moody, the great um, preacher, defined repentance as a turning away from a sinful life. And he says these words, man is born with his face turned away from God. When he truly repents, he is turned right around toward God. He leaves his old life. Well, that definitely indicates a repentance of sin was believed by D.L. Moody as part of true repentance. Um, we could look at the famous B.H. Carroll, the great Baptist theologian who wrote on Baptist history. His fierce support of the doctrine of repentance cannot be overlooked, and he said, the preacher who leaves out repentance commits as grave a sin as the one who leaves out faith. I mean, he must preach repentance just as often and with as much emphasis and to as many people as he preaches faith. To omit repentance, to ignore it, to depreciate it, is rebellion and treason. That is powerful. And he's showing there that repentance is not faith. They're not the same. Repentance is separate from faith. Um, and I won't give too many more quotes here. There's one more that, that really grabbed my attention. And that is J. Frank Norris, famous fundamentalist. In his book, What Fundamental Baptists Believe, he said, The proper evidence of the new birth appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. There was a time when the ministers never preached without giving a call for repentance. But it is out of date now. Oh, for the voice of John the Baptist. Repenti, repenti, repenti. Jesus said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Paul preached repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that repentance and faith are solemn obligations and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the quickening Spirit of God, whereby being deeply convicted of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy. 
at the same time heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and openly confessing him as our only and all-sufficient Savior. And so the great preachers of old preached repentance from sin. By definition, repentance requires a turning from sin. And it is required in order for somebody to come to saving faith. We find Jesus said in Matthew 21 in verse 32, he said, For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. Jesus said they would not repent that they might believe. So it's required before belief. In fact, you can't have saving faith until you repent, according to Jesus. Um, it is required before faith, Acts 20, 21, testifying both the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. It is required before salvation, as Paul wrote, and we saw earlier, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. And I would say the reason why repentance must come before faith is because our sins separate us from God. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. John 9, 31 says, Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. David writes in Psalm 66, 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. No man has ever got to God with sin in their heart. It always hides them from the face of God, and it shuts out their prayer from heaven. It separates them from God, and that is why repentance is required as a prerequisite to faith. I always picture it like this. I'll close with this this evening, that Repentance and faith are like a room with a door. Inside that room is the saving power of God, the blood of Jesus Christ, re regeneration, salvation, redemption, justification is inside that room, but there's a door to get into it. Written across that door is the word repent. Until we open up that door, we cannot get into the room where we find faith to believe upon Christ and his words to receive the gift of salvation. And if we do not pass through that door, we will never be saved. Therefore, repentance is a prerequisite for saving faith, which brings genuine salvation. Thank you so much for sharing this hour with us and helping our listeners to understand what repentance really is. And I, I just am blessed to have shared this time. And we're going to come to a close on the program. And I just want to thank you for listening today. And also, if you have questions about repentance, please go on Facebook and look for Repentance Cry Ministries. And Pastor Aaron is the head of that ministry, and he will be more than happy to answer questions for you. And God bless you and talk to you soon.